Hi, I'm Carmen LeBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio. Good morning. Hello, precious friend, wherever you are right now, in whatever time zone and circumstance and whatever challenge or great expectation for the day, which now lies ahead. God is with you. God is with you. As the psalmist declares, God is very present. Should consider that for just a moment. God is very present. God's nearness, God's attentiveness, God's concern, God's grace, God's provision, God's power. God is very present right now, right where you are. No matter who you are or where you are or what you're facing, God is very present right now. And his very presence is such a gift. That's such a gift. I invite you to breathe deeply of that truth and that reality right now that God is very present present with you. I'm going to encourage you to turn to him, acknowledge him, address him. Psalm 42 verses 1 and 2 says, as the deer pants for the the living water or the watery brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Are you soul thirsty today? soul, parched, thirsty today. I'm going to invite you to drink deeply of the living water of the living God. In Revelation 22, verse 17, we read, The Spirit and the bride say, Come! Let the one who hears say, Come! Let the one who is thirsty come! Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Revelation 21 the Lord is saying to, to John and to us, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Are you soul thirsty today? Jesus says, come. In chapter 55 of the prophet Isaiah, we read, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You've got no money? Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. In John chapter 7, we read that on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So I'll ask again, are you soul thirsty today? Jesus says, come. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. Days that I thought would never end. 
We talk frequently about the need to develop and apply the mind of Christ to the matters of the day. We do that so that we can walk out our faith and shine like stars in a perverse generation. We're trying to represent Christ well in the world. Um, in order to um, in order to do that, we got to develop the mind of Christ, and then we have to apply the mind of Christ. So, what is the mind of Christ, and and how do we not only comprehend it but apprehend it? So, we're going to talk again today uh, with Pastor Daryl Crouch, another installment in our series from the Living Word of God to Living the Word of God. Daryl, welcome back. Well, good morning, Carmen. It's great to be with you. Good morning. It's wonderful to have you. So the mind of Christ, we're not just talking about, you know, like his brain. So what what is the mind of Christ? What's on the mind of Christ? And how can we develop it? That's so good. And I think as we read through Philippians and you, that's where that phrase comes from, this attitude in Christ that uh, may, may this be in you, which was in him and and this challenge. And if you if you step back a few places um, and look at his letter to the Philippians, you'll you'll find that his uh, Paul's um, consuming passion was to know Christ and to make him known. Uh, the person of Jesus was his passion. And so as we think about the mind of Christ, as you mentioned, it's not about the brain of Christ, or this isn't simply an intellectual pursuit, although the intellect is very important. This is about the whole person's consuming passion. And I really, I really appreciate the conversation because it's, it's, a, it's tempting for Christians to uh, have a good devotional time, uh, make sure they read their Bible and pray in the morning, and then set that aside and go about their, their day. Uh, maybe informed by some values that they sh- that they that they know are important to treat people right and pay their bills on time, all those things. But uh, in terms of a consuming passion, that uh, he is our breath, he is he is the um, the focus of our lives. Integrating his life into ours is really the call of of Paul's letter to the Philippians, and and really to what it means to walk in Christ and to have the mind of Christ. Certainly there's attitudinal things, and we can talk about those, but I love Paul's uh, focus. He says, this one thing, this is what I'm doing. And if you read chapter one, he says, listen, I'm, I'm going through some tough things, but if it, if you, if, if, if it means you knowing Christ, uh, it's all worth it, uh, whether living or dying, if you know Christ, and then he goes on in chapter three, and he says, for this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind me. There, so so in essence, from my perspective, um, there's um, the mind of Christ is the, the consuming passion to know him and to make him known. That's so good. Um, Daryl, when we, when we talk about knowing Christ, it's not just knowing about him. This is not just informational. I like the way that you use the word integrated or, or integrating. Um, I like the, um, the, the recognition that this is ad, attitudinal. Um, it's not just informational. I can know a lot about Christ without knowing Christ. In the same way that I can know a lot about um, a celebrity or someone um, on social media and not really know them. I think there's a lot of confusion um, between those two realities, knowing about Christ and knowing Christ? Well, without, without question, and many of us are fans of a lot of people. That's a great analogy. And, and somebody asked me a long time ago, if I could meet anybody in the world, who would I meet? And, 
and uh, you know famous people or you know presidents of the United States or whatever it may be and 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 this is a quirky thing about me so it's not true about everybody and it's fine but I really don't want to just meet someone in a in a fan line, you know, and just shake their hand. I don't really have any interest in, in standing in line just to meet someone for a five second, you know, exchange. Uh, I want to sit down with them for a cup of coffee. I want to sit in their living room or around their kitchen table, not their dining table. I want to, I want to sit and be with them. And I, I think, uh, that's the invitation of Jesus to sit and be with me, uh, know me and know my ways. And, um, uh, you can wave at me. You can cheer for me. You can sing songs to me and about me. And and worship is obviously a wonderful expression of our intimacy with Christ. But we can sing the songs and cheer and uh, wave the flags and um, and call ourselves Christians. And we certainly may be uh, and not have an intimate relationship with Jesus. And so uh, he invites us to the kitchen table. He invites us to come closer. And um, that is through his word. That's through prayer. And um, that's through uh, community and the fellowship of the saints. So it's a, and that's through uh, living out our lives. Um, one other just anecdote, I was talking to a business leader yesterday and, and I reminded him again, cause he, yeah, he's a faithful Christian man, but there, there's this sense that what he does at the bank every day is um, not as much soul care as what a pastor may do on a Sunday. And uh, certainly the the roles are different, and the the weight of those of that work is different. But um, his work in helping people um, have housing and um, and do the things that God's called them to do in tilling the earth uh, and cultivating the soil is just as much soul care. If my if my pantry is empty, it's it's not just my stomach that hurts. It's um, so so the the economies of our communities in our nation. Um, uh, God cares about those things. And so as the banker goes to the, to work every day, he is, he is, he is ministering to people. He is uh, providing soul care and helping people be who God has created them to be. And so this integrated faith, I think is really important. And, um, so, uh, as we go along, uh, cultivating this one focus, this one thing, whether I'm banking or whether I'm preaching, whether I'm serving coffee, whether I'm taking care of my kids, um, uh, my one thing is to know Christ and to make him known. So many folks uh, checking in this morning on the text line. You can do that as well, 877-933-2484. Mary checking in from uh, the Seattle, Washington area. So it's really early out there. Good morning, Mary. Uh, Mary uh, says, such a good needed reminder, this consuming passion I'm reminded then, um, Daryl, that that consuming passion does become this refining fire, and um, it's, it's good to think about as well. Um, and uh, David Castro is saying, um, oh, yes, um, coffee or breakfast or maybe lunch. Like, right? You can uh, is, Every meal is a good meal to, to share with the Lord and be in, um, in personal fellowship with him, getting to know him intimately and personally, and coming to know Christ more fully, even as we are already fully known. So much um, to till here in the conversation about the mind of Christ, cultivating the mind of Christ on the matters of the day, um, apprehending, and then applying the mind of Christ um, to everything, to every area of life. We're going to continue our conversation with Pastor Daryl Crouch in just a moment as we not just, uh, you know, we're not just reading the living Word of God. We're actually living out the Word of God. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen.
Continuing our conversation with Pastor Dale Crouch, we're talking about the mind of Christ. I mean, it's, it is, uh, in my scripture notes, like the sidelines of my Bible, I, I frequently just write T-M-O-C, so T-M-O-C, the mind of Christ. And I'm, um, I'm seeking to discover um, what the mind of Christ is and what the mind of Christ is then on particular concerns or issues, and then apply it, applying the mind of Christ to the matters of the day, uh, tilling the soil of the entire book of Philippians, but there are also passages in um, Paul's correspondence with the church at Corinth that we could turn to um, as we you know, seek to uh, comprehend and apprehend the mind of Christ. So we're talking with Pastor Daryl Crouch. Um, Daryl, I'm wondering if there are um, some some things uh, that we could point to in terms of the mind of Christ. Um, I'm, I'm thinking here about 1 Corinthians, um, uh, particularly chapter 2. Um, are there things about the mind of Christ that we can say that um, that maybe set it off from, you know, just what might commonly be on the mind of an individual who might not be applying the mind of Christ? Well, I think there's a there's probably a lot of ways we could uh, talk about that, but certainly Paul's letter to the Corinthians, um, his letter to the Philippians, uh, Jesus's discourse in John 15, mm. super super helpful. Um, I think uh, sometimes we become so consumed with the things right in front of us that we can see, and um, we may not want to become mystics, and I understand that, but there is a spiritual realm uh, to our existence that's very important. And uh, Paul says, listen, this is um, our battle uh, to, to the Ephesians. He said, our, our battle is not flesh and blood. Uh, this is uh, the, the enemy that we face, uh, although we may have people in certain spheres of influence that oppose Christianity, and we would see them as an, as an opposer, as an enemy of sorts. Um, he said, listen, our, our, our battle that we're facing today is not flesh and blood. There are spiritual forces in heavenly places, and the enemy is the devil himself and his demons and spiritual forces of darkness. And I think uh, some of us uh, are uh, are practically materialist sometimes. Mm. Uh, we um, are battling for the things that we can grab, the things that the people that we can convince, uh, certainly in this day that's so contentious and, and divided in so many ways. And so uh, we're grabbing onto things and pursuing things that we can see, feel, and touch. And uh, certainly the material world is important. God created uh, what we see and so on. But um, I think for us to have the mind of Christ, we must, uh, we must acknowledge that the anxieties that we face, the dreams that are in our hearts, the, um, some of the challenges that we face emotionally um, are rooted in, in the spiritual realm. And uh, for us to uh, engage in those things with the mind of Christ, with the wisdom of God, the uh, Word of God being our, our chief informant, our chief tutor, allowing the Spirit of God who, who inspired the Bible, who preserved the Bible, um, to now teach us the Bible and, and work in our hearts to transform us that we may see uh, maybe things a little more uh, similar to the way God sees them from an eternal perspective and that um, he's playing a long game and uh, he is um, bringing about 
all things to himself. And um, so I, I think that's helpful. Certainly there are uh, challenges to that. You mentioned uh, the other thing I would say is that you mentioned before the break this refining fire piece. And I, I think uh, suffering, and Paul said it to the Philippians, he said he, he in this, my, this one thing I pursue, and he speaks about the fellowship of his sufferings. And he speaks of it in a number of occasions through that letter. Uh, I think suffering has, um, I know as a parent, uh, I, I don't want my kids to suffer. Uh, I just don't want them to hurt. Uh, but sometimes suffering is the exact thing that we need uh, in order for God to refine us and to show us himself. And so the lack in our lives is the providence of God and the, um, the, uh, uh, the tutor of the Holy Spirit uh, to refine our thinking, our attitudes, to conform them more to the mind of Christ. And so sometimes we, again, want to put uh, uh, everything that we have into numbing pain or into uh, avoiding suffering, when in fact, uh, the way we approach uh, suffering and the way that we um, receive suffering um, can um, be a wonderful blessing uh, and uh, from the Lord to, uh, to show us things and to teach us things about Him and about knowing Him and being seeing His provision in ways that we would never see otherwise. And so those two things, as I think about our spiritual life and, and how we respond to suffering, I think uh, ties in a great deal to, to uh, developing the mind of Christ. This is such um, rich and fertile soil. We could, I mean, we could till this all day long. Um, I'm, I'm mindful as you, um, as you're talking that, you know, one of the, one of the things that maybe the headlines constantly make me aware of is that Jesus's kingdom is not of this world. And, and yet, the kingdom of God is instituted here, and I pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and I want to be a living demonstration of uh, of the kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of this world, and all of that is wound up in this conversation about developing and then applying or living out uh, the mind of Christ in, in every day, in every way, in every relationship um, toward everyone as, you know, if, if I really have the mind of Christ, then I am... Um, eternally focused, and I am desperately interested in people coming to know who God really is. If Jesus comes to exegete the Father, and I am a person that is now possessed with an all-consuming passion to be a Jesus person and a representative of Christ in the world, then I got to be concerned um, for the spiritual welfare and the and the eternal well-being of everyone and their temporal well-being as well. Like it's. It is all wound up. There's nothing that doesn't fall under this sort of canopy of concern in terms of the mind of Christ. Absolutely. Paul, and that's so well said, and uh, the kingdom is so important. Paul said uh, in, in Philippians 1, he said, as citizens of heaven, he just he, he made the assumption that they understood that we as believers are citizens of another kingdom. Uh, but then he said to live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so as citizens of heaven, we live here uh, for the glory of God, for the advancement of the gospel. And so you're, exact, you're exactly right. This Our citizenship has been secured and um, our papers uh, are, have been validated as 
uh, we are kingdom people. And we uh, live in such a way that uh, points people to the kingdom, to the king of the kingdom, and uh, to join us as we follow him. Uh, and you're right. It happens in temporal ways and, and um, uh, uh, public, uh, public engagement in, in, uh, in uh, legislation and policy in the public square. That's super important. Uh, to advancing the kingdom, and then in our devotional life or in our personal life, as we, I know at the, one of the breaks, we, um, the mental health and addiction is such an important conversation. Uh, the, the king of the kingdom um, has uh, has power over that as well, and so um, I think again this integrated faith and in that our lives have been secured in Christ. We are citizens of a new kingdom. And we live worthy of the gospel in this one. So, such a blessing. Thank you so much. That's Pastor Daryl Crouch. You can find him at Everyone's Wilson. Um, And just, we're just inviting you. We're inviting you to um, find your way today into the Word of God. Um, Get to know Jesus better and better. Uh, Comprehend and apprehend the mind of Christ on the matters of the day in order that you will be more well-equipped as a citizen of the kingdom of God to bear positive public witness to who he is in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is Faith Radio. I've got a friend um, from seminary. Uh, his name's William Vanderblumen, and he um, he now runs a big search firm. You know, helping uh, helping ministries and congregations identify um, leadership that's going to work for them that fits their culture. And one of the things that William talks about all the time is culture wins. Culture wins. And um, I was thinking about that truth when I was uh, considering just this, I mean, kind of shocking reality that how precipitously Americans decline, uh, this decline in acknowledgement that there is a God and certainly in a belief in the God of the Bible um, revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And so if I think for a moment about this reality that culture wins, that the water that you're swimming in actually has more to do with who you become than um, than maybe the institutions of that culture, right? Culture actually wins. The things we're listening to. Um, music wins over lecture every time. It finds its way into your heart in ways that um, discourse does not. Um, the, the media of the day in which you live finds its way into your conversations in ways that the books you read actually do not. It's just, it's the way it works. The water we swim in actually just becomes our, you know, our second nature, our instinct. As people, that's just how it works. Culture wins. And so I want us to consider that when we are, um, when we are seeking to bear public, positive public witness to who Christ is, when we're, when we're seeking to be shiny lights in a dark and perverse generation. We just have to recognize and remember that people are swimming in water that is grossly contaminated today. Um, And they've been swimming in it. They were born into it. They have grown up in it. They've been educated in it. 
Um, it's the water they're swimming in. And so I want us to consider that when we are um, imagining how we are going to approach people who are not Christians um, and seek to bear positive public witness in the midst of our culture uh, today. Jim Dennison is one of our friends who does that each and every day. Um, he uh, heads up an organization called the Dennison Forum, the author of The Coming Tsunami. He's going to join us next. We're going to talk about some of the headlines of the day. Um, one particular decision issued by the Supreme Court yesterday that you're going to find very interesting. It's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. During the month of June, the Supreme Court of the United States issues its decisions, and uh, we're expecting about a dozen of them um, this next 10 days. So one of those rulings came down yesterday, and it is described in Jim Dennison's daily article at DennisonForum.org as a great day for religious liberty in America. Uh, Jim, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Tell us about uh, this Supreme Court ruling yesterday in relationship to education, and the way we pay for it. Carmen, thanks so much. So glad to be on with you today. It's always a privilege to do this, and I am very, very pleased about this and excited. So Kelly Shackelford is a longtime friend of mine. He's the CEO, the president, and uh, chief counsel at First Liberty, which is an organization devoted exclusively to defending religious liberty. So they brought this case along with a group called the Institute for Justice, and the Supreme Court did rule yesterday specifically that Maine cannot prohibit parents from using a state tuition program to send their children to religious private schools. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the majority opinion. He made the statement, a state violates the free exercise clause when it excludes religious observers from otherwise available public benefits. And Kelly wrote in response to this that he considers this to be a great day for religious liberty in America, and I agree. So um, there's conversation out there in relationship to this and the Blaine Amendment, and I, I don't know if... You can brief us in on that at all, because I, I find the this a little bit of a confusing conf- confluence of conversations. Well, there's some real challenge in this, you know, and it really has to do with how we're going to understand what it means for there to be direct government aid to educational institutions. So when you're talking about the Blaine Amendment, you're working specifically in that area. This is uh, an attempt to ensure that taxes did not benefit religious Mm. organizations. This is back in the 1870s. This is a long time ago that this conversation was happening. At that point in time, there was a desire to use public funds to support parochial schools, and they felt that that was a violation of the separation of church and state. You wouldn't want your dollars being used to, let's say, support a Buddhist school or a Muslim school or something with which you would disagree. And so that was the argument, the conversation back in the day. There's an argument now that what the Supreme Court has chosen to do is in violation of that. And that's, in fact, what the minority stated in their finding here. The majority said, on the other hand, that when the state offers its funds for private education, it cannot then discriminate as to the nature of that private education. That's what makes this a little different than public school tuition being used for sectarian education. So if you're listening right now and you live in one of the 37 states that have a Blaine Amendment in your constitution, what happened yesterday at the Supreme Court is going to be of particular interest um, to you. If you are a family that uh, desires to 
send your child to a private um, uh, religiously affiliated school, this affects you potentially as well. Um, in your state, which now, I mean, you know, in states where money follows students, um, this this ruling basically says the money can follow a student, shall follow a student um, as freely to a religious school as a non-religious school. It's, it's pretty exciting, pretty exciting um, day. All right. Um, also in today's um, daily article at Denison Forum, you talk about three ways to restore broken relationships. And I wonder if you will um, unpack those for us, because I just thought that was such a blessed help um, right now when we're just dealing with so much friction in our culture. I found it to be helpful as well. Thank you for giving me a chance to go over that. So Justin Welby is Archbishop of Canterbury. And I have to make an admission, even here on air, that even though I'm a lifelong Baptist, I'm also a bit of an Anglophile. If there were two of me, one of me would live in the UK. I wish I could speak with a British accent. I would sound so much more distinguished. And so I've always been, in a sense, a fan of the Anglican Church, and I follow Justin Welby's career. He's an evangelical, also the Archbishop of Canterbury. We don't always agree, but grateful for the work that he's trying to do. So he had a recent an article in The Guardian, which is a secular publication in the UK, in which he wants to what he calls restore broken relationships, build connections across difference, and bridge divides. He says there are three things that we can be doing toward a reproachment and toward a greater sense of harmony in the culture. Number one is to be curious. To quote the Archbishop, when we encounter difference or people we don't understand, do we truly hear their story and see the value they might bring? Do we come to discussions with humility to learn from those who aren't like us? So first, be curious. Second, be present. He says, can we fully encounter other people with authenticity? Can we bring our beliefs as well as our vulnerabilities to the conversations? And third, I thought was especially fascinating. He wants us to reimagine. To quote the Archbishop one more time, peace requires a shift in our moral imagination, a transformation of our understanding of what could be possible. That's how we break out of repeated cycles of violence. We have to be able to imagine a different world before it can become reality. I believe the Holy Spirit wants to help believers do all three of those things today. I love the um, the starting point of, of be curious. Um, I think the the opposite of that is being defensive. Like, right, if I'm if I'm genuinely curious about other people, the circumstances of their life, the way they're thinking about something, which is then going to drive the way they respond, um, why they think differently about things or see things differently than I do. If I'm genuinely curious, um, I have a much better chance of having a real conversation than if I enter into that conversation defensive. Like, Absolutely. So. Mo- mostly concerned about myself and whatever it is that I think and believe as opposed to genuinely curious about what they think and believe. And why they think it, how Mm -hmm. they got to where they are. There's always a why behind the what, isn't there? And when we understand the reason they're there, we can so much more effectively engage in that conversation. I remember years ago, Carmen, it was in the first church I was pastoring. We were doing a QA and a on a Sunday night service, and a woman raised her hand and asked, why does God allow Alzheimer's? Well, before I launched into a theological response to that, the Holy Spirit just stopped me, and I asked her why she asked the question. Mm -hmm. Her mother had been diagnosed that afternoon with Alzheimer's, and it made it a very different conversation that if I had not asked the why behind the what. And so if we're at that point not being defensive, not looking for ways just to win arguments or to win debates, but genuinely curious about the other person, what they believe and why they believe, we're so much more effective, I think, in engaging in redemptive relationships. So let's plumb that um, a little further, Jim, because there's a lot of people listening right now um, who 
are now asking that question. Why does God allow Alzheimer's? And in all likelihood, they have either lost someone already to a dementia-related um, illness, or they are right now watching um, someone disappear. Like, right, the the this world is becoming more and more dim, um, and I am, you know, living with the hope that the reality of God and his goodness is becoming more and more real to them every day, but I don't know that. Mm-hmm. So t- talk with us about the answer to the question. Um, there is a personal tender answer to that question because it's being asked out of um, a personal relationship, but there's also this like reality of sin and how far we live from Eden answer to the question as well. There really is, and it's on both levels, isn't it? On the one side, it's Jesus weeping at the grave of Lazarus, not answering the question so much as responding to the issue with personal empathy, with personal connection, with personal compassion, and that's always where we start. I often say that Job's friends did well until they started talking, and so the first place is solidarity. The first place is to stand with the individual that is in the exact place that you're describing right now. I have friends in that very place myself. We have had Alzheimer's in our family as well. It is a horrific disease. It is a horrible disease. It is a horrible tragedy, day-by-day tragedy to experience. And so that's the first place, is one of personal solidarity, asking the Holy Spirit, Lord, help me to grieve as you grieve. Help me to, to have connection and empathy here. And then on that second level of the theological level, it's exactly as you said, we're far from Eden. We live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. This world is not the way God designed it, not the way he intended it. In Eden, there wouldn't be disease. There wouldn't be disaster. There wouldn't be earthquakes. There wouldn't be the natural catastrophe catastrophes and the plagues and the pandemics that we struggle with every day. And so we live in a broken world, in a fallen world, and this is an example of that. Alzheimer, like cancer, diabetes, any other disease is one example of the brokenness, the fallenness of the culture. The good news is that God can heal and we can pray for healing. And if God doesn't heal physically, he heals eternally by bringing those that love him into personal, intimate, eternal paradise. And so we're trusting him. For physical healing, for emotional healing, we're trusting him for the strength we need as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death with those that are at that place today. It's so helpful, um, and it's important for us uh, as Christians to speak very candidly about the reality of death and that death comes. It's not a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise. Um, And the conversation about what comes after death should be at least as interesting, if not more interesting to us, than, right. uh, than why death comes and when it's coming and by what means um, in this life. So um, we're going to continue our conversation in just a moment with Dr. Jim Dennison from the Dennison Forum. Um, if you're not already uh, signed up to get their email, denisonforum.org, I highly recommend it. The daily article is a wonderful resource. We're going um, to return when we come back to the issues of Pride Month, and how Christians should respond when employer when their employer actively supports, let's see, L- LGBT I- ideology or abortion, um, as we anticipate the SCOTUS ruling on abortion as well. Those conversations up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All joy, no Continuing our conversation with Dr. Jim Dennison, you can find what we're talking about today at denisonforum.org. Jim, a couple of, um, you know, culture issues here. One, we are all anticipating the decision of the Supreme Court in the Dobbs case related to um, abortion here in the United States of America and universal access to it. We're also in the midst of so-called Pride Month, and I'm just wondering if you could 
talk with us around these two topics. Maybe we could start with, you know, like how, how do Christians function well um, in environments where, let's say, their employer is on the for, you know, pressing forward on the foot in terms of uh, uh, LGBTQIA plus advocacy and or um, abortion? That's a real-life issue, isn't it? Isn't that where we're living uh, really every day? And if the Supreme Court does, in fact, overturn Roe, so to speak, as we know, that doesn't make abortion illegal. It returns it to the states. And now, for instance, there are a large number of companies that have already decided they're going to use company finances to pay for their employees to travel to states where abortion is legal in order to be able to procure abortion. And so let's say you work at one of those companies. How do you respond to this? What do you do if you're in a place where Pride Month is being advocated in a way that really Really you feel is infringing on your religious liberty and your personal beliefs. What do you do in that space? So I was in a conversation recently with a man that's an executive in a major healthcare organization, a secular organization. He was moving into a CEO role in that space, and he wanted to have that very conversation. How does he balance faith with that? So he and I talked about it on three levels. The first is to know what it is you already believe. Make that decision ahead of time. Before you have to know it, know it now. What you believe and why you believe it. What do you believe about when life begins? What do you believe about abortion? What do you believe about same-sex marriage, LGBTQ advocacy, all of that? Get a sense of where you are in that space. Our ministry and a lot of others are here to help you navigate that and get to that place where you have your own conviction. Second, know where your red lines are. No secular organization or even religious organization is going to be perfect. They're not going to match your ideology entirely. So decide where the hills to die on are. Decide where those red lines are. For instance, with that healthcare executive, he said if his organization ever moved to adopt uh, elective abortion, he would resign. He'd already made that decision, so if they do that, he already knows ahead of time what his red lines are. On the other hand, he's chosen not to resign in spite of the fact that they participate in Pride Month, that they'll do a rainbow on their logo, things like that. He's chosen not to give up his influence over that issue, even though it's not where he would personally be. Second, know your red lines. And then third, speak and act redemptively. We're here to be cultural missionaries, not cultural warriors. We're here to speak the truth in love and to use our influence to advance the kingdom. It's really easy, Carmen, I'm tempted by this every day, to try to win debates when really what's important is winning souls. And so speaking the truth in love ought to motivate everything we do. That's so helpful. That's so good. If you guys want to get that list, um, you can check it out at denisonforum.org. It's also uh, in an article that Jim authored uh, that's posted at christianheadlines.com. I want to talk specifically um, for a moment, Jim, about sort of anticipating the ruling of the Supreme Court in the Dobbs case, which everyone would refer to as, you know, the, the case on Roe v. Wade, um, and how we're going to respond, because we don't actually know what the Supreme Court ruling is going to be. But we can anticipate a need to respond in a way that is gospel consistent, no matter what the decision of the court is. Can you talk us through that a little bit? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you're talking about in the context of the individuals that are in this very issue. This is not just a speculative issue, is it? So many, many years ago, I was pastoring a church where we had our Sanctity of Life Sunday, as Baptists have often done in January, and I preached the strongest message I could against abortion. After the service, our counseling minister came up to me, thanked me for the service, said he agreed with everything I said, but wondered if I considered how many people in that congregation had had abortions, which I had not. 
I had not thought about the individuals who are themselves the victims of abortion as uh, biological mothers and fathers and families. I'd only thought about the children themselves. And so this needs to be personal, not just speculative in all that we do in the midst of this. So you're right. We don't yet know. We have that leaked memo that was actually in February when it was written, which is an eternity from there until June. There's speculation that there are five justices that are absolutely for overturning Roe. There's speculation that Chief Justice Roberts wants to uphold Dobbs while upholding Roe and is trying to get one of the five, perhaps Justice Kavanaugh, to come over to his side. And so we really don't know. We won't know until the actual ruling is itself issued. But when it happens, if it does overturn Roe, as grateful as I will be for that fact, that does not make abortion illegal. It returns it to the states. Sixteen states have already decided, they've already put into law that they will affirm abortion, some of them, through all nine months which goes much further than Roe. So in some ways, if the court overturns Roe, the battle's only beginning, and it moves now to our local areas where we're on the front lines. I think there are opportunities, Jim, for, um, we talked a little bit about this yesterday, for folks to actively support and um, and make their support public for pro-life pregnancy centers in their communities, um, for churches that, you know, sort of known to be pro-life, um, I think they're, uh, you know, we know they're going to be targeted. They're already being targeted. I think that making our um, personal support of those ministries, you know, manifest and evident um, is really important. I think supporting members of Congress, um, I think supporting the Supreme Court justices, I think making um, our public support of people um, who are pro-life, I, I think making our public support of them known is an important witness in the midst of whatever the ruling is. Absolutely true. This is not on any level something that will be decided by a simple majority of the Supreme Court. The Roe v. Wade, you could argue, is, has been the most divisive ruling in the history of the Supreme Court. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg, not long before her death, stated that she felt that Roe was an overreach and that the divisiveness that has continued from then until now was an indication of the fact that the court did not decide in a way that was redemptive relative to the larger cultural narrative. And so we're at this place now. We're seeing uh, pro-life pregnancy uh, clinics being firebombed. We're seeing churches being assaulted. If this does, in fact, uh, overturn Roe, there's expectation of assaults on the court. There are already barricades, I understand, that are being placed around the Supreme Court building in advance of this. We've already seen picketing outside the justices' homes. And so whatever we can do to be positive and proactive in support of life, and those who support life. This is that moment for us to rally together and be not just pro-birth, but pro-life across the spectrum. Yeah, that's just really so helpful. Um, anything else, uh, Jim? We got like one minute. Anything else uh, you want to tee up today for a conversation? No, thanks, my friend. As we're in the midst of all these divisiveness issues of the day, I'm just continually sensing that the Lord is calling me and I think calling us to be a part of a great spiritual and moral awakening in the culture, which is the ultimate issue we're facing. Everything else is a symptom of that. If we could see the kind of spiritual awakening we've seen four times in American history that we're seeing in many places around the world today, if we could see the kind of moral and spiritual transformation that I believe the Holy Spirit wants to bring about in our culture, then at that point, so many of the moral issues, so many of the ethical divides of our day are very, very different. So I'm praying every day for God's people called by his name to humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways so that he will hear from heaven, forgive our sin, and heal our land. 
That's the prayer I believe God is calling us to pray today. Amen. Amen. That's uh, Dr. Jim Dennison. He is a great friend of the program and mine, and uh, we love having him with us. You can check out what he's writing. They've got some great podcasts posted as well. Um, You can check it out, denisonforum.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm reminded now just to simply invite us to pray, to pray with and for one another, to pray um, to the Lord for revival, both personal and, um, and cultural, institutional. Like, let us be praying for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And where does that start? Well, that starts in me. That starts in me. Holy God. Let your kingdom come, reign in me, be enthroned in my heart, in my life, in my mind. Cooperate today with the Holy Spirit as God continues the good work that he began in you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit to bring to bring you into one degree, one degree of conformity closer to the image of Christ. That's my prayer for myself. It's my prayer for you. I'm encouraging you to invite um, God to do that work. And then let us humble ourselves and cooperate with the Holy Spirit as he does that work within us. Let his kingdom come and his will be done in us today. we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.